The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 77, The Classical World Summary, Part 2. BCE. Much focus was on the turmoil of Greek-speaking societies at the end of the 5th century BCE. But despite the turmoil, the Greek-speaking societies were at the forefront of world academia. The traditions of Greek lyrical poetry made popular by Sappho were being continued by celebrated poets such as Pindar, A celebration of Greek scribes took place at a regular festival in Athens called the Great Dionysia. Dramas were written to be performed and the best dramas would be performed at the Great Dionysia before a panel of judges who would select a winner, who would be presented with an ivy wreath. Both Aeschylus and Sophocles were highly respected writers of dramas called Tragedies and they would return to the Great Dionysia many times to each be victorious during the 5th century BCE, even known to compete against each other. After Aeschylus' heyday, a younger tragedian called Euripides would also win the ivy wreath on multiple occasions. The Greeks didn't just write tragedies though, as they would also write comedies with Aristophanes, being one of the most celebrated comedy writers. As mentioned in the last episode, the Greek rationalist train of thought would compromise the mythological stories of the pantheon of Greek gods, and two of the earliest great Greek historians would highlight this division in philosophy. Herodotus always wrote with a high regard for the gods and heroes of Greek mythology and would often compare them to the deities of other cultures such as the Phoenicians, for example. Herodotus's contemporary was a historian called Thucydides who was known for having a much more rationalist style of writing. Theory of medicines was recorded by a highly respected physician called Hippocrates. The Greeks were known for celebrating the human form with their athletic Olympians representing the pinnacle of human form and subsequently many statues were sculpted of naked humans in all their glory. One of the great sculptors from this period was Praxiteles but it was a man called Phidias who would sculpt the statue of Zeus at Olympia which would be named as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
Phidias was also responsible for one of the more impressive pieces of architecture called the Parthenon, which he designed. It would take pride of place on top of the Athenian Acropolis, which stood tall over the city itself. This was a golden age for Athens, often called the Age of Pericles, after the great statesman who led the city-state with great competence and confidence that embodied the feeling of the Athenians in the generations that followed their amazing defeat of the mighty Achaemenid Persians at the beginning of the 5th century BCE. The one city-state who defied the Athenians, who by the age of Pericles had subjugated many of the Greek-speaking polis who once formed the Delian League, was the city-state of Sparta. Sparta and Athens had never seen eye to eye and only ever supported each other when they both fought against the Achaemenid Persians under their king Xerxes I at the start of the 5th century BCE. Sparta resented Athens for attempting to overrule Greek-speaking lands, considering themselves to be the greatest Greek-speaking entity. This tension would erupt into a full-scale war between the two called the Peloponnesian War, which drew in most of the Greek-speaking polis, who were forced to pick sides in this long-drawn-out conflict, which would do little to help either party in the long run. Despite Athens's dominance being compromised to a huge degree by the Spartans, Greek philosophy continued to flourish, but with controversial thought influencing an unsettled younger generation of a severely weakened Athens, the philosopher called Socrates was found guilty of corrupting the youth within the city and was executed. Socrates had left an academic legacy which was picked up by his student Plato, who set up the first Greek academy of thinking and learning, and one of its students was a man called Aristotle. We mentioned that the Hallstatt culture was established as an Indo-European speaking peoples who were using iron and spoke a form of Proto-Celtic. By 400 BCE, we can assume that they were distinctly Celtic and the cultures in the early Roman Republic called these people the Gauls. Often Latin can be referred to as a typical type site for this brand of Celtic culture and it was certainly active at this time in history. Rome at this time was really just a powerful city-state in the north of the Italian peninsula and the Etruscans who had once created a ruling dynasty over Rome were still in control of the lands to Rome's north and stood between Rome and the lands of the Celts. The Celts were a warrior race though and used to creating their own fortune at the expense of others and some described the Etruscans as being a race certainly more closely related to the Celts than to the Romans. The Romans mythology was linked very closely to the Greek mythology with very similar deities comparable to those of Greece which point towards a cultural exchange at some point before this time. It is likely that Greek merchants and explorers discovered Rome and built trade links with it that would facilitate the growth of both Roman and Greek cultures. The Romans built a great temple on top of the Capitoline Hill in honour of three specific deities. Jupiter, 
who was the Roman equivalent of the Greek god Zeus and the king of the gods. Jupiter's consort called Juno, who was the queen of the gods and the equivalent of the Greek goddess Hera. Finally, the third member of the Capitoline triad was Minerva, a Roman goddess and a daughter of Jupiter, who would come to be compared to the Greek goddess Athena. Jupiter, Juno and Minerva had their own dedicated temples within a temple complex on the Capitoline Hill. And it would be the geese within the temple of Juno who would cackle loudly as the Celts approached Rome from the north in the year 390 BCE. This warning was not enough to enable the Romans to prevent the Celts from sacking the city before negotiating a tribute and leaving the Romans to rebuild their city. This Celtic invasion would live long and hard in the memory of the Romans for centuries to come. 300 BCE The city-states of Greece, such as Athens and Sparta, had been greatly weakened by their conflicts with each other in the Peloponnesian War during the previous century, the 5th century BCE. And so neighbouring city-states and kingdoms no longer saw any necessity to see themselves as inferior to these once great entities and would be happy to stand up for themselves. One of the neighbouring territories gaining power to the north of the traditional Greek city-states was Macedon. And in the middle of the 4th century BCE, their king was Philip II. Philip II would approach the Greek polymath Aristotle to be a teacher to his son Alexander. Macedon became so powerful that Philip II would lead an army to victory over a coalition of Greek forces at the Battle of Chaeronea in 338 BCE. Alexander would accompany his father Philip on this campaign. When Philip died in 336 BCE, his son Alexander took his throne and would punish the Greeks for attempting to rise up against him. Alexander would then embark on a major campaign of conquest and he would target the Achaemenid Persians. The Achaemenid Persians were not as strong as they may have once been and Alexander III of Macedon would recognise an opportunity to capitalise on this. Alexander would defeat the Achaemenid Persians led by their ruler Darius III at Issus and then quickly moved to take control of the wealthy territory of Egypt in order to boost his resources and cement his supply lines. Alexander would then finish off the Achaemenid Persians at Galgamela and took all of the territory up to the Indian subcontinent, all within just a few years. This was an astonishing achievement which left us considering Alexander the Great as one of the greatest military generals of all time. The Achaemenid Persian Empire was now history. Many cities were founded or renamed in Alexander's honour, with the most famous of all being the great city of Alexandria in Egypt. It's interesting to speculate as to whether Alexander the Great ever encountered another great historical ruler when he reached his easternmost point, as these would have been the lands of the Indian subcontinent during the young life 
of Chandragupta Maurya. The lands of India had now developed considerably with many new settlements along the river systems founded by the Indic migrants who had spread into these lands following the disappearance of the Harappans a thousand years earlier. It would not be long after the premature death of Alexander the Great that Chandragupta Maurya established his own powerful empire within the Indian subcontinent. This was the Maurya Empire, the first great empire of India, established in and around the lands of the Ganges River, which was the same area of the world that the Buddha had achieved his enlightenment almost a couple of centuries previous. As for Alexander's new territories, they were thrown into chaos, with many of Alexander's great generals believing that they should have a share of the spoils, and so the territories of Alexander's empire were carved up between many individuals. But these individuals were certainly not all content with their share, and subsequent councils and skirmishes took place in order to restore some kind of stability. The situation would take a number of decades to be resolved, and this would be called the Age of the Diadochi, a Latin term for successors. Ptolemy Sota would take control of Egypt and declare his independence from the rest of the remnants of Alexander's empire, leaving the lands of Macedon, Syria and Pergamum to sort out their own differences. Sir Lucas Nicator would take control of the lands of Mesopotamia and the vast expanse of territory eastwards up to the extent of the Maurya Empire. This would be the new Seleucid Empire that would also expand their territory west to effectively replace what was the Achaemenid Persian Empire as the vast empire in the lands of the Near East. The entire balance of power of the lands in and around the Mediterranean Sea had changed. For some it was beneficial. The new Ptolemaic rulers in Egypt started to try to restore the former glory of these lands. A huge library was built in Alexandria, iconic of the continuation of Greek academia in Egyptian lands. Ptolemaic Egypt would also develop commercial bonds with other lands such as the island of Rhodes in order to stay one step ahead of its post-Macedonian empire rivals. And Rhodes would enjoy a period of prosperity that enabled them to build a huge statue by the entrance to its harbour that would be known as the Colossus of Rhodes, once again one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Moving into the 3rd century BCE, the Republic of Rome would start to move its focus southwards, mainly because of the activity to the south potentially becoming problematic for them. Firstly, the Samnites of the middle of the Italian peninsula had a conflict of interest with the Romans who were essentially preventing each other from having too much influence on the societies of Middle Italy. The result would be the conquest of the Samnites and a significant expansion of Roman territory. This signifies the start of the Roman rise to dominance and the gradual construction of its vast empire. In a similar manner to Greece, academia and the arts in China continued to progress despite the fact that the states of China were continually at war with one another. This was the Warring States period 
of Chinese history and also a period where China was still somewhat isolated from the cultures elsewhere in the world. Despite this, the three well-known philosophical branches of Taoism, Legalism and Confucianism continued to develop. Poetry existed in China with one celebrated poet called Chu Yen believed to have been alive during the Warring States period. If he was a real person and not just a legendary figure, then it may be accurate to describe him as China's first major poet. The situation in China was about to alter dramatically as one state in particular was about to start a totalitarian approach to gaining full control of China. They were the state of Qin and in the year 260 BCE they would deal a defeat to the powerful neighbouring state of Zhao at the Battle of Changping which would signal a great decline of Qin power and influence. The Maurya Empire in India persevered as the most powerful imperial entity in Indian history and was now under the rule of Ashoka the Great. Ashoka was a ruthless warrior who was reported to have had a change of heart after reflecting on the human carnage of warfare and he chose to embrace the Buddhist traditions that existed as a minority in his lands. It is also speculated in some forums that the origins of what we can describe as the Hopewell chiefdoms started to emerge in North America. These chiefdoms existed in the USA's Midwestern region and particularly to the south of the Great Lakes. The Hopewell chiefdoms didn't all share the same culture but did seem to develop a good trade network with each other but their prominent years would have been in the following centuries. 200 BCE One of the most notable of all events that straddle this period are the Punic Wars. After the Romans had defeated the Samnites and taken control of their lands, they would also take the lands of the southern Italian peninsula, otherwise referred to as Magna Grecia after many had shown loyalty to the invading Epirate Kingdom from the Balkan Peninsula. The Carthaginians in Sicily had also had to defend their territory from the Epirates, and once they had gone, the Carthaginians tried to take control of the whole of Sicily, which brought them and their interests a little bit too close to the Romans for comfort, and so a military encounter became inevitable and it would affect the entire western Mediterranean and all of its surrounding lands. Initially, the conflict would be confined to the lands and seas in and around the island of Sicily, which Carthage had occupied in part for a number of centuries. After a long period of time, the Romans were able to get the better of Carthage and expel them from Sicily. The Carthaginians returned to North Africa embarrassed and humiliated by the Romans and harbouring a hunger for vengeance. The man who would lead the attempt at retribution was called Hannibal and he would achieve an incredible feat by crossing the Alps with a huge entourage before heavily defeating a Roman army on their very own soil at the Battle of Cannae. However, a man called Scipio 
launched an attack on Carthaginian territory and took control of the coastal lands of Hispania away from Carthage and into Roman hands, therefore extending their empire once again. Both Hannibal and Scipio would end up in a showdown on North African soil when they met at the Battle of Zama. Scipio was the victor and Carthage was forced into a weak position by Rome, who now had all the power in the western Mediterranean. Now, Rome could look to the Greek lands for their next issue as there had been tension carried over from the earlier days of the Punic War, which Rome had not been able to prioritise dealing with. Macedonia was now no match for the Romans, who conquered them at the Battle of Pydna, and split Macedonia in order to prevent it from rising up again. Before the Battle of Zama had taken place, the Romans had dealt with an uprising of the city of Syracuse in Sicily, the home city of the famous scientist called Archimedes. Archimedes's famous moment was when he took a bath and realised that the displaced water would be equal to the volume of his body and so he ran down the street without his clothes on, shouting, Eureka! Archimedes lost his life as a man in his seventies following the Roman success of besieging Syracuse. There was little to stop Roman expansion now. In Asiatic lands, the Seleucids were facing rebellion from within because a man called Arsakis was crowned the king of the Pani people and they had taken control of the lands of Parthia, directly to the east of the Caspian Sea. These lands were on the northern fringes of the Seleucid Empire, that would border onto lands controlled by steppe cultures such as the Scythian peoples, and had previously been among the northern extremities of Alexander the Great's lands, and the Achaemenid Persians' area of influence. This new Parthian kingdom would eventually create big problems for the Seleucid Empire. Directly east of Parthia were the lands of Bactria, and a few decades later the Bactrian kings, who had also been subject to the Seleucids, took full advantage of the fall of the Maurya Empire of the Indian subcontinent and pushed their influence into the lands of the northwest subcontinent, creating independent kingdoms that shared Greek and Indic cultural aspects. The Bactrian kings were Demetrius and Menander, and their new kingdoms would help to preserve aspects of Greek culture that had migrated thousands of miles from their place of origin. The Qin had by this time taken control of the whole of China. After great reforms of its constitution that would put it one step ahead of its competitors, the man referred to as the first true emperor of all of China was the ruler of the Qin and therefore called Jin Shi Huang. The Qin dynasty was very short-lived and after Jin Shi Huang's death, a peasant called Liu Bang would rise from the chaos left behind and establish a new Han dynasty of China that would dominate Chinese politics for the next four centuries. It may have been thanks to a migration of people from the lands of China from very many centuries before that we recognise a population of the small islands of the vast Pacific Ocean 
and we can feel somewhat confident that the islands of the areas known as Melanesia and Micronesia had been significantly populated by this time period. Melanesia and Micronesia refer to the areas of the Pacific Ocean to the northeast of Australia and the islands between Asia and Hawaii. Hawaii is much more closely linked to Polynesia, which is venturing towards the Americas, and it is during this period that we recognise that humans were making significant advances geographically by also reaching these very remote islands. 100 BCE Roman foreign policy was as aggressive and as ruthless as ever. Both the Carthaginian and the Greek issues were put down with astonishing force. Corinth was sacked and the entire Balkan Peninsula was now subject to and a part of the Roman Republic. Carthage was destroyed with genocidal force. The Romans had made the decision that the Carthaginians would not only be defeated but completely wiped out and wiped off the map. Any Carthaginians that did survive were consigned to a life of slavery or public service labour, such as building the first true bridge over the river Tiber. Rome had always dealt with social problems throughout the years of the Republic. In the early days, many who were not granted the same privileges of the upper classes had threatened revolt and even secession until reforms made the Roman Republic more inclusive, with the lower societal classes earning much more political influence. Then came the issue of the people who belonged to the lands that the Romans had conquered being denied full Roman citizenship due to their different ethnicity. Couple this with the fact that many felt that Rome was still weighted far too heavily in favour of the upper classes and there was a real danger of fragmentation. When the Gracchi brothers attempted to rise up against the Roman constitution and rally people to pressurise Rome into reforming, many senators opposed them and this rebellion was simply put down. But the sentiment still existed within the population and certainly among a particular group of politicians. So Rome would do what it would normally do and reluctantly reform itself, but very gradually and just enough to placate the opposition within. Reforms of the army and allowance of all ethnicities of the Italian peninsula to claim full Roman citizenship soon followed, and maintained the strength and cooperation of the population. A rebellion of gladiators led by Spartacus caused more trouble than it maybe should have done, until it was eventually put down. This feeling of rebelliousness within Rome was quite a serious problem. A triumvirate of noble politicians took control of the Roman Senate via political influence as opposed to military force. However, the political unrest between the differing factions was still bubbling underneath the surface and a triumvirate of politicians were also of different opinions. Nonetheless, they did manage to steady the ship between the three of them as they were attempting to serve the greater good. It would be no good to anybody if the Roman Republic was torn apart by political difference. 
the Parthians had taken control of all the lands of the eastern Seleucid Empire, and now the Roman Republic had managed to extend their territory to Anatolia via diplomacy and conquest, so they were also approaching the Seleucids from their west. It looked very much like the Seleucids were being sandwiched into oblivion by two stronger imperial forces. The killer blow came when one member of the Roman triumvirate, namely Pompey, led a Roman army to successfully conquer the Seleucids. This would now bring the Roman border up to the Parthian border, and a huge battle took place where another member of the Roman triumvirate called Crassus was defeated by the Parthians and killed. The third member of the Roman triumvirate was a man called Julius Caesar, and he would successfully conquer Gaul, a heroic act considering the reputation of Gaul as Roman rivals since their sacking of the city itself over 300 years earlier. Caesar attempted to take lands across the water in Britannia, but this proved too much and so the conquest of Gaul was enough and the lands were brought into the realm of the Roman Republic. While Rome was becoming more powerful in the west, the Chinese Han Dynasty was becoming more powerful in the east. And where the two powers likely had very limited knowledge of one another before this time, things were about to change. The Han Emperor Wu sent an envoy called Jiang Tian to negotiate a political relationship with the Yueji people. By the time he was able to reach them, they had settled the lands of Transoxania, roughly modern Uzbekistan. Jiang Tian learned more about the cultures of the lands between the Yueji and the Parthians, and he would take this knowledge back to China. The Chinese then made a conscious effort to build trade links across these new cultures of Western Asia, which, as we all know, was a land that Romans were now venturing into. The Romans would express an interest in the exotic goods of these trade routes, which included Chinese silks, previously unknown to most Romans, and so we refer to these trade routes as the Silk Road. The Yueji were occupying key lands between the Romans and the Parthians, but there were also Indo-Greeks and Scythians close by, and so a competition for these lands started. A splinter group of Scythians called the Shakas took control of some of the Indo-Greek territories in and around Bactria, but the Parthians would be very keen not to have their own part in the equation being compromised by these less powerful groups and continued to try to impose their influence on them. By this time, a recorded history of China had been written much in the same way that Greek scholars had done so in the West. And the most famous of all Chinese historians from this period was Suma Tian. His works would influence future historians of China. Thank you so much for listening to this marathon summary of the classical world. It's a, it's a bit of a biggie. I didn't expect it to be this big, but um, I certainly should have it wrapped up in another two episodes. I, it's nice to be able to do it properly, isn't it, and, and follow the story correctly. So uh, another two episodes, and then we'll be 
at the end of volume three. Um, as ever, if you're enjoying the podcast and you would like to support the podcast, it's uh, it's greatly appreciated. It really does make a difference and, and does help me to improve the the podcast in general. So if you'd like to do that, then just nip along to our Patreon page. Just go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, click on Patreon, and sign up to make a monthly contribution. Your contributions really do make a difference to the product that I'm able to put out there so um, I really do appreciate it and, and honestly it does make a difference um, when you do make a, a, a monthly contribution you're automatically um, invited to be a part of the History of the World podcast Illuminati uh, a very exclusive group for those people who do make financial supports of the podcast regularly and uh, uh, this week I have to um, I have to introduce uh, Gressia Bates. I have to introduce a twenty twenty three three, and uh, I think Yannick Kerhervy. Oh, I'm not sure Yannick. I think he may have been a member in the past and, and have and have joined again. Perhaps I'm not sure, but um, certainly uh, all of you are now members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. You can go and tell your friends and family and, and have a, a great celebration about that. So uh, thank you very much, and thank you for supporting the project. Like I say, it really does make a difference. Let's move on to listener messages now. While I've been recording this podcast, I actually received an email from Harmony, who's put, hello, I found your podcast by searching Google for history podcasts and have so far listened to a couple of episodes. I'm very impressed by your extensive list of episodes and how much you've covered. I'm especially interested in learning about conquest, both by emperors and also by local rulers, but not just in broad terms of who conquered who, but in the details of what the conquerors did to the conquered and how the lives of the conquerors were affected. Have you discussed this in any of your episodes? And if so, can you please let me know which ones? If not, can you recommend any other podcasts or perhaps books or blogs or videos that deal with this topic? I know a lot of resources uh, to learn about this regarding European conquest and colonialism, but not about conquest and colonialism that precedes it. Thank you, Harmony. Um, Great question. Incredible question. Um, not one that I've ever been asked for before, and um, and it really it really did get my sort of grey matter, um, you know, in in action. And um, it's difficult. It's a very very difficult question to answer because obviously, often conquered people um, will often have, to some degree, will have their culture removed from them to to a greater or lesser degree and and so we don't often have first hand accounts of um of ancient conquered peoples uh, not least of all i think because the 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 most of the people most of the peasantry would have been illiterate so they wouldn't have recorded anything at all regarding their life experiences and we're just left with the the propaganda um of um, how wonderful their lives may have been if even if they if even if it wasn't uh, thanks to uh, the conquests because the uh, it would have been the conquerors who would have written uh, any information that we may read today 
So it's very difficult, very difficult, but it's also circumstantial. And, I, and I've and I've replied to your email, Harmony, and, and sort of discussed, discussed why it's difficult to answer and why it's circumstantial. So, for example, um, the Romans, a fine example of like Roman conquest and how they treated their subjects. Um, the third Punic War against the Carthaginians, we saw total conquest by the Romans. They they went into Carthage and destroyed Carthage, uh, slaughtered the population. Um, anyone that was left was either consigned to a life of Roman slavery or was just left to um, try and live on infertile lands. Uh, so it was it was absolute total destruction. And, and anyone that would have been Carthaginian at that time would have been, you know, would have had a miserable future uh, to look forward to. Um, and it may not have been a long one. Um, but however, if we look at somewhere like Pergamon, where the, the ruler of Pergamon willingly gave his territory to the Romans, and the Romans could have just probably waltzed in, um, installed some sort of local governors and, and the land would have probably just run as usual with everyone just able to continue living their lives as normal but just under Roman rule. So um, where there was no rebelliousness, there was no necessity to go all out and you know embarrass your, your new subjects. If there was a significant rebellion in that, um, in that area or in that territory, then obviously the the conquering party would have to take strong measures to prevent any uprisings in the future. So a fascinating um, question and um, not a straightforward answer, I suspect. Um, I'm sure there are many that have a lot more expertise um, that are able to sort of answer that question maybe a little bit more comprehensively, but that's my opinion anyway. Uh, Priyank Sharma has written in saying, Hi Chris, listening to your podcast has been a ritual of sorts for me for a while now. This morning when I was driving out of Delhi and back to my home in Noida, I hope I've, I've said that correctly, I heard your unscripted podcast about people's angry messages and stuff. It was definitely a fun one. Just wanted to touch upon the Aryan invasion theory. Of course, swastika predates the Aryans by thousands of years and sure, Aryans have earned a bad name for themselves which is why... Indians hate being associated with Aryans in any way, especially to say modern Hinduism has its roots in Central Asia. What this has led to is some nationalists claiming that there has always been uh, an outward migration of Indians to Europe, etc. And Indus Valley is a precursor to all major civilizations. While you can argue about the veracity, and I am also a firm believer in Aryan mixing, not invasion, it's fascinating how much evidence exists that the Vedic civilizations and thus Aryan and Indus Valley have in common. In my opinion, the best way to put it would be an amalgamation of belief systems, but it's fascinating how any which way history can be argued to suit a certain narrative. I, however, love your methodical approach to history and I'm a big fan of you. Been, a, been for a while, actually. Would love to start my own podcast someday. Good luck, Priyank. I'd, I'd love for you to start your own podcast um, someday. I know one or two listeners to the podcast have, have attempted to do that and, and I've been impressed by their work. It's, um, you know, there's certainly a lot of talent in the, in this world, isn't there? And, uh, you know, and, and, it's, and it's great, you know, certainly for me, 
it's wonderful to be able to express myself um, through this podcast. I find it very gratifying. Um, so, you know, I'd love to hear that others are, are finding that same pleasure out of doing it. Um, certainly the whole, um, um, you know, that whole stigma of, of Nazi um, Nazi use of uh, the, these terms, Aryans and swastikas and all that kind of thing um, is very problematic because now we have a concept of these things that is skewed and, and completely untruthful. So with the swastika being like a religious figure of luck um, until the 1930s when the whole... The whole, you know, you see a swastika now, and it's almost as if your your blood runs cold for for a moment or two just at the sheer sight of it. So, um, it's um, you know, it, it's it's fascinating how our uh, how our concepts of things can can alter, you know, according to sort of just how something is used. Um, I certainly am. I'm really grateful for your message, Priyank, because, um, like I've said in the past, you know, when I'm discussing areas of the world that I have absolutely no cultural connection to, I think it's important that people do write in and tell me their point of view, um, because then I can, I can sort of say that during a podcast episode and you know open that you know that feeling up to the world and certainly I'll, I'll i'll go as far as to say and this might be a bit controversial me saying it a lot of history that is that you know certainly i read in great britain has been written by you know white historians from years gone by who um have a very imperial outlook to you know british history and, and the world history attached to the british empire and um, sometimes I feel like, um, you know, the points of view of all cultures of the world can sometimes be overlooked because we're still learning about the feelings of those countries which, you know, certainly in the case of Britain, were conquered by British Empire and, you know, have been written about by the British Empire. So it's, it's very interesting to hear um, from people who do have you know, a cultural connection to these stories. So, um, you know, it, it will certainly um, improve our history and it will certainly give it a lot more depth and um, and it will give it a lot more substance and, and give us a clearer view of, you know, the world which we all live in, you know, cheesily as brothers and sisters, you know. So we, we all exist together and we should all know about each other's cultures and, and and learn to appreciate each other. So I think you've made an incredible point there, Priyank, by, you know, um, you know, bringing up the the whole uh, Indian, uh, you know, feeling about these terms. I think uh, it's no more you know, uh, prominent than, than hearing it from someone from that part of the world. So thank you, Priyank. And uh, yeah, really fascinating, especially um, when we look at the the seal, the uh, Pushapati seal uh, that um, seems to depict the Hindu god Shiva um, before any kind of Vedic scriptures. So this, this sort of dates to Harappan civilization times, which is not you know not known to be um, Indo-European or Aryan or even Vedic. So, um, 
this amalgamation of beliefs is for me it's it's unignorable it's completely unignorable when we've got artifacts like that that we've discovered so but thank you so much Priyank and thank you to everyone that, that has written in I'm just going to cover some reviews now um, we've got some reviews absolutely amazing from Scott Luntz from the United States of America uh, listen to every episode uh, love ancient history and this is the best in terms of depth insights and variety also love your sense of humor passion and care a complete and utter joy to listen thank you for bringing this all to us scott luntz connecticut uh metis the midwife has, has put fantastic show tight scripting while managing a trove of unfamiliar terms names and locations makes for a truly interesting show in under an hour I particularly enjoyed his months-long dive into the Roman Empire and his focus on emperors, along with the broader Roman history. I just got an iPad, and this is the first thing I did after setup. The show is that good. Cheers, Chris, and I look forward to Volume Three. Uh, and that's from Metis the Midwife from the USA. And then finally, uh, Jared Chay Smith from Canada has put amazing. This is the best. Good voice, informative, and relaxing to listen to. Um, I, I'm always astonished by just how kind uh, everyone is in terms of what they what they write on these forums. I can't thank you enough for all your kindness, and uh, and it really does motivate me to do my best to continue to give you great episodes about history. So thank you so much. Next week we'll continue we'll continue this journey through the classical world. And until that time, uh, have a great week, everyone, and uh, be sure to be good. Come to the History of the World podcast.com and join all the other hot worlders on our wide range of social media. Why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati? Drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast.mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.